0: This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like droplets, spaces, Kubernetes, load balancers, block storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Let's do it. Let's go time. Welcome to GoTime, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, New Pacific. Join the community that's live with us in real time during the show in the GoTime FM channel in go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Listen live at changelog.com slash live or subscribe at changelog.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show.
1: Well, hello, and welcome to GoTime. I'm Matt Raya. Today, we're talking about concurrency. Go was designed with concurrency in mind, and that's why we have language primitives like Go routines, channels, weight groups, mutexes, these sorts of things. Um, and they're very powerful when they're used correctly, but they can be very complicated if they're used unwisely. So helping me pick the threads today, I'm joined by Johnny Borsico. Hello, Johnny. Hello, Matt. How are you? Oh, I'm here to pull some threads. Good. Glad. Well, you don't have to pull them on your own. We're also joined by Jana Bidogan. Hello, Jana.
2: Hello, hello.
1: How are you doing?
2: Um, I'm just having my first coffee of the day.
1: Congratulations. So I
2: will be a bit sluggish, yeah?
1: Yeah, enjoy. And that's, uh, yeah, there's another voice, if you've heard it or not. It's Roberto Clapis. Hello, Rob. How are you?
3: Hello, I'm fine. And since today is going to be a complicated subject, I'm going to tread lightly. Ooh, oh, that is nice. Very nice. to Nice. Hear.
4: Off to a great start, I'd say. Off to a great start, Good. I'd say. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, why don't we jump in?
1: When C was designed in the seventies, the computers had like a single core, and they were very they were much simpler than what we have now, and More modern machines have multiple cores, and so there's more potential for doing things at the same time, whatever that means. And so when Go was designed, of course, they knew this, they knew this situation. And so that's why we have Go routines, and we have channels, and uh, we have those other primitives. And Go is actually quite famous for concurrency, actually they become quite synonymous when you talk about languages out there. And do you think it deserves that credit that it gets?
3: I think it does. Actually, before using Go, I had been using Python for years. And at one point, I needed to solve a problem using all the 36 cores that I had available on a cluster on my university. And the pain of doing that with a language that wasn't designed with that in mind actually brought me to say, okay, what about learning a new language and maybe makes this easier? And with Go, it was... I think a hundred lines and I was done. Wow.
2: I'm coming from a JVM background and like every time we start this like large, you know, process heavy type of stuff, I was always complaining that it's taking all of my, you know, processing power. But it sounds like it's a good thing, right? Like rather than doing this manually.
1: Yeah. So for people that are new then to go, I'll give a quick overview of some of the primitives and some of the language that we're probably going to use today. Just to make sure that we kind of, you know what we're talking about. So the, a Go routine you can think of like as another thread that's running. It's actually not a thread, but if you think of it as your main application runs and that's one thread, and if you want to do some work in the background, then you can spin up a Go routine to go and do some work. And Actually, you can spin up quite a few of these Go routines to sort of go off and do their work and they'll, they'll in theory, do it as as best they can with the hardware available to them. And then, of course, we have channels, which are communications allows communications between the go routines. Um, and so they're quite cool for you can send and receive information in a in a safe way because if you have these go routines trying to access the same memory at the same time, you can run into problems. So they're the sorts of, I'd say, the generals of the two things. There's also the go keyword, which is what kicks off a go routine. So you can call a function and kick off a go routine that way. So anyone that wants to learn more about this stuff, you can probably just search it in your favorite search
4: engine, DuckDuckGo, or whichever one it is. So that's the overview done. So it's. I think it's important to also sort of uh, talk about the kinds of things that might be sort of a suitable for concurrency. So not everything, not every problem you're going to have it requires, um, can even leverage concurrency. So usually we talk about, uh, when we talk about, okay, can this, if you write a program, when you talk about, okay, can this program be made to run concurrently or parts of it be made to run concurrently, you usually try to identify what are the parts that are independent, that kind of can be worked on independently of each other, right? So if you don't have any sort of dependency from one part of your, your your task to the next, then these often are sort of uh, cases where concurrency perhaps could be useful to you. Um, so the Go routines themselves, uh, you don't actually need the messaging mechanism um, of channels, you know, to to actually leverage concurrency in Go. Just to you know, just the keyword Go um, will sort of get you started. The real kicker is, especially when beginners sort of start to un- trying to un- unwrap, understand, okay, how does this stuff work in Go? They usually find out, okay, well, it's a matter of basically your main program is itself a go routine. And then if I'm gonna kick off other go routines, I need to they need to somehow wait on one another, right? Your main go routine needs to be able to wait on, on the work to be finished by the other go routine or go routines before your program can can finish, right? This is where sort of the that uh, how do you string these things together, right? How do you properly leverage right? uh, concurrency in Go sort of becomes important. That's And that's the part I think we could spend more time sort of uh, out in a community sort of uh, doing more to educate beginners really on how to think and reason about concurrency in Go.
3: One thing that I really, really love about Go is that concurrency and parallelism are kind of separated and you don't have to think about them. For example, when you use the HTTP package, uh, every time your handler is going to be called, it's going to be called inside, inside its own go routine. But when you write the code, it feels synchronous. You know it's going to be an independent thread of execution, but you don't have to change your mindset to use it properly. It's not like you have to use async things or some different primitives. You just write your code for what you want to do. And um, it doesn't even have to run in parallel with other things because, if, for example, if you're running on a single core, you probably won't. And you just write it and I mean yeah we we probably should educate or put out some material to think about it and learn about it but what I really love is that you can get started very easily and just write your synchronous code and you don't care
2: yeah, I think it's fairly also easy to you know just migrate synchronous stuff uh, to have more concurrence in it. Uh, the magic of Go is, I, th- I think, in select statements. Um, and people have been complaining that it's actually not that easy to understand the behavior of select. But otherwise, it's just like looks really readable and you know really like there's no magic and like it's this is one of the I think languages I feel more comfortable writing more concurrent code and like other people just going through and like understanding what I'm doing. So Go is definitely the best Yeah, my currently uh, currently my best tool probably for concurrency.
1: Yeah, I agree with you about the select statement. When you really get that right, can be extremely powerful. And the common way that I've used it recently a lot is checking for the context to be finished. So if I've got some work I'm doing in a loop, I'll have a little check somewhere, perhaps with a select block that will just basically check if that context has been cancelled or not, allowing me to interrupt the work and exit somewhat gracefully if, if it's cancelled. And that's quite nice when you wire that up with the HTTP request context as well, because then you essentially, if the user cancels the request in the browser, in theory, that is going to stop the little the work that you were doing in order to prepare their request. And whatever saving that gets you, I don't know, but it's just very satisfying to know that that's what it's doing.
2: Do you feel like um Go can do more out-of-the-box things with context? Like, I feel like there's a lot of boilerplate. Um, you need to make sure that, you know, the context is not canceled. There's no timeout and whatever. Uh, do you feel like, you know, is there any, any place that, you know, there can be some improvements? Maybe there could be, like, certain features of Select that automatically handles some cases or whatever. I'm just brainstorming right now, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I don't know. That's actually a really interesting question. I wondered whether having context just part of the, the language. And this is kind of a non-Go thing because Go likes to be very explicit all the time. But I could imagine there's always a context around and you can always cancel it and sub functions and things will get cancelled in the same way you could almost imagine that it's a bit like how exceptions probably work the opposite way in other languages so I'm not sure it would get much support but sometimes I do find myself just passing the context into every every method just everything because even potentially my logging has need for a context and so in that case so does everything I'd like to not do that as much but again it's explicit and you can't call that method without it
3: I hope that just automatic context doesn't become a thing. I like to know when I start a GoRoutine how and when it ends. Let's take an example. I acquire a mutex and I defer the release of that mutex. And that is fine. And then uh, I change a little bit of state and then I do something else. And if I encounter an error, I want to be able to, for example, roll back what I've done so far. You can't always defer that. So sometimes when you write like transactional code, you want to be sure that you will not be aborted. Unless the program panics, when in that case nothing will be committed, you really want to know how you exit. I would really like to know when code that I'm writing gets interrupted. And I want to be in control on when that happens and how. So if a context gets cancelled. I want to have a chance to say, okay, then roll back what I started doing.
1: Yeah, that's a fair point. One of the nice things about the select block is that it is actually a block. There's a case, there's the certain code that runs in certain conditions. So you do actually have that opportunity that, that you described to be able to go and yeah, do some kind of tidy up or some yeah. cleanup. And it is explicit. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting, you mentioned you want to know when it ends. Has anybody got any techniques of how you can find out when a Go routine has finished?
3: I think that it doesn't matter how, but you should always know. I mean, I've seen so many programs and so many projects just become unmaintainable because they were just pinning up Go routines and let them run without handling their like shutdown, graceful shutdown. Has this been someone else's experience too? Well, they all shut down when your program ends, right?
2: <laughs> Hopefully. So you crash programs. Otherwise you
4: have a problem. Yeah.
2: You know that there's a strategy of crashing programs once a while, you know, to kind of like release that type of like, you know, resources. <laughs> so that's a fair point. Yeah.
3: Just reboot it. I wonder even why do we have a garbage collector?
2: Just, <laughs> you run out of memory,
3: just
4: exit. Yeah, restart.
2: That's what PHP is.
4: <laughs> so to kind of address your question of, of do we know or can we know when the guru routine is done? I don't think there's a, any sort of a, a life cycle event or anything like that you can attach to to know when a go routine ends. What you typically do, however, is that you need, this is where sort of the, the communication aspects of, of things start to emerge, right? So if you, for example, if you know you're in your main go routine, you'd like to know when... The, the uh, another grow routine that you, you spun off it has done doing its work and you want to wait for it, right? You know We have mechanisms in the language, you know, like a wait group, for example, would be a great way to actually um, basically block until the other grow routine is done and then you're able to sort of move forward kind of thing. Uh, and this is also where channels come into play, right? So if the grow routine you spin off to go do some work and if you can, you know, when you initialize that, if you can pass a, some sort of a, a channel to receive some sort of communication back when that work is done, you know, either your main routine or some other routine that needs to know about that event can actually be notified, right? So this is where the, that communication channel, right? <laughs> uh, no pun intended. This is where that communication sort of channel is, is, is necessary for you to kind of know basically the state at what point right of the work that you spun off in a go routine at what you know what's the state of that is it done is it finished and there's lots of other different ways as well you can sort of enable that sort of that communication but there is no direct way of saying hey did this grow routine finish right you, you kind of need some some instrumentation around that
2: you mentioned about uh, the life cycle and, like, there's literally no APIs for that. And, you know, it's by design, just keeping everything more compact and, like, simple to the user. But in the last couple of years that I've personally came to a lot of, like, cases where I really wanted to, you know, execute the limitation in some ways or, like, wanted to pin certain Go routines or, like, the underlying OS threads to some, you know, processors and so on. Did you ever, like, had any, you know, troubles in, in the scope of this Um what do you feel about like the Go is very, very simple when it comes to like, you know, execute, it just kind of handles it all and like encapsulates the problem from you. But you know, it kind of limits the user in a way. What is your take on that?
3: I think it does in kind of a good way. So for, for some things, the layer it gives you allows you to build better abstraction top, for example, error group which is a thing that I use everywhere, because when you cancel the context, it's immediate to know when everything has ended and propagate the shutdown. But at the same time, if you want to go lower, as you say, for example, at one point you want to drop your privileges. So if you want one go routine to say, okay, uh, this program is running a root, shall not route, uh, be root anymore. Dropping privileges is still broken and has been broken for nine years. Because it's racy, has problems. Go doesn't give you that fine-grained control on the underlying threads or like pinning on a certain core, uh, for example, for graphics. The only way to do that now is from the main function, say, okay, pin me on this OS thread forever and I'm going to be the one that draws. And that's clunky.
2: Yeah, true. And like uh, with Numa and all these like new uh, ways of like actually like you know, controlling the scheduling. You know, the Linux kernel have this uh, new capability uh, called NUMA. You can pin yourself to like certain processors or like certain group of uh, processors. And people do this like for this like fine-grained optimizations because you know more about like, the, you know, the, the task, uh, whatever you're running and just grouping things together, whatever, it just makes sense. And um, I've been experimentally using Go for this purpose, but it's been such a, you know, hard topic. All you can do is just lock, uh, Yourself to the OS thread, and like you have some control over the OS thread through some C libraries, and that's kind of funny.
3: I think it was the restrictor authors that said that they needed a thread local storage, but Go doesn't offer you that, so they used sync pool, which is lossy, and still mm-hmm. decided they were good with that because lossy was better than trying to share stuff with other threads. I guess when you get that far, you <laughs> might be using something wrong. <laughs>
4: sure. To be fair, they did say that there was uh, um, actively use of some form of thread local storage under the hood, but it wasn't accessible to you as the user of the language. Yes, yes, that's why they did that.
2: There are actually some people who are abusing that uh, underlying uh, storage, and uh, I've seen some companies doing like some automatical instrumentation based on that, uh, like some sort of like execution tracing type of thing. And it's very controversial, and of course, like not recommended. But uh, people are just you know reverse engineering and like hijacking that, which is scary. <laughs> <laughs>
0: How often do you think about internal tooling? I'm talking about the back office apps, the tool the customer service team uses to access your databases, the S3 uploader you built last year for the marketing team, that quick Firebase admin panel that lets you monitor key KPIs, and maybe even the tool that your data science team had together so they could provide custom ad spend insights. Literally every line of business relies upon internal tooling, but if I'm being honest, I don't know many engineers out there who enjoy building internal tools, let alone getting them excited about maintaining or even supporting them and this is where Retool comes in. Companies like DoorDash, Brex, Plaid, and even Amazon, they use Retool to build internal tooling super fast. The idea is that almost all internal tools look the same. They're made of tables, drop downs, buttons, text inputs, and Retool gives you a point, click, drag and drop interface that makes it super simple to build these types of interfaces in hours, not days. Retool connects to any database or API, for example, to pull data from Postgres, just write a a SQL query and drag and drop a table onto the canvas and if you want to search across those fields add a search input bar and update your query save it share it it's too easy Retool is built by engineers explicitly for engineers and for those concerned about data security Retool can even be set up on-premise in about 15 minutes using Docker Kubernetes or Heroku learn more and try it free at retool.com changelog again retool.com changelog
1: Some other packages, then in in Go, that we have for when it comes to working in concurrent ways. I'm thinking specifically about the sync package. Sync once is a very helpful little utility. Essentially, you give it a function and it guarantees that that function will only be called once. And so, it's very useful in a, say, a web context if you've got a handler that's going to do some initialization work up front and you might want to defer that until the first time it's called, then put, you put it inside the handler itself. But of course, since every request gets its own Go routine in Go, it's possible that two requests could come in at the exact same time, spin up two Go routines, and they both try and do that initialization, or they're checking for nil or whatever they're doing, To in, and they'll sort of step on each other's toes, and you can use sync once to protect against things like that. What happens is the first one that gets there runs the function, and all the rest will wait until that function's completed, and then they'll unblock and continue. So really useful, very practical. It's such a great utility. But there are some other lower-level ones too, aren't there?
3: Yeah, like SyncMap, which I think is the most misused single <laughs> structure in the entire Go standard library. Really? Yeah, because people assume it's just um, thread-safe hash map. It's not. I think it's a, a, a thread-safe hash map is a map with a mutex. Hmm. That's about it. The sync map is actually to reduce cache contention. So I've seen a lot of people plumbing it everywhere they needed a sync m- map. But actually uh, what they needed was just a map with some protection on top. And sync map is useful if you start noticing that you contain caches too much and you have a lot more reads and writes. But um, I think that's about it. And it's even written, "Don't use this," or even "Sync Atomic." Mm. <laughs> it's specifically written, "Don't be smart."
2: Yeah, I think it's the name. It's the name. It's just like it says, "Sync Map." So I think it's just not very self-descriptive, right? Like that's the main reason. Because in the Go doc, it explicitly says, "Hey, for most of the time, you actually need a plain, you know, Go map instead." But the name just doesn't suggest that. It should have been called maybe Sync Dot like some.
4: Cache, Some other
2: whatever, thing. Magic yeah.
4: whatever map <laughs> so for those listening the the guidance there is to basically just use a mutex right to protect access to your maps right is that what you're saying rob
3: yeah yeah basically that and until you realize your mutex is the problem don't switch to something else
1: so that's an interesting thing then so johnny
4: could you just tell us what do you mean by a map and a mutex how does that actually work Right. So by default, your regular good old map, right? The stuff you'd create in your plain Jane Go code um, is not safe for concurrent access. Uh, so you could have sort of a uh, multiple go routines trying to write to the same um, key at the same time, that kind of thing for reads. It potentially it's, it's okay. But typically when you want to basically limit the number of go routines that basically are either writing and or reading from, from your map, um, to just one at a time, right? So that's where your your mutex, short for mutual exclusion, that's where that comes in. So basically it guarantees that only one of your goroutines is going to be um, accessing or mutating uh, something about your map at any one time. So what we've been talking about is basically is, that, okay, does the sync package is map type does it give this out of the box? So basically to echo Yana is basically that, well, it's named like it should be, (laughs) but it's not. Like, you know, you should really be using like a regular map, but introduce a mutex to deal with that that, that possibility of contention.
1: Yeah, thank you. And so, yeah, if you want to access this map that Johnny was talking about, you lock the mutex, then you do your accessing, and then you unlock it when you're finished. And if other things try and lock that same mutex, while you've got it locked, they'll then wait for you to unlock. So that's, they are synchronization points, and they, they do create contention. I mean, we're saying that we have this concurrent program, but not at these points. At these points, it's not concurrent. You have to all come here and wait for some reason. Yeah, and it can get tricky to
3: think about. I, I want just to annoy you. You should lock the mutex, defer unlock, and then access the map.
4: Ooh, let's talk about Defer. Matt, you've been wanting to talk about Defer forever. I love Defer. I, I
1: genuinely am trying to get do an entire episode on Defer, but I think we just have to do it at the end of the season, don't we? We can't do it before the end. has to be the final episode.
4: Uh, so, defer, f- with defer, the interesting bit, I think, there have been a lot of uh, uh, performance improvements in defer, um, recently. It used to be, I remember once upon a time using defer, and there were some benchmarks that were floating out there, uh, in the past, uh, basically showing that defer, basically you incurred a penalty, a performance penalty, right, with the, with heavy use of defer that is now less so. I don't, I don't know if it's completely sort of a, a non-issue anymore, but defer is much faster. So, Rob, when you say that, hey, you should just lock and defer the unlock, I'm like, yes, now it's. T- I would totally jump on that uh, on that bandwagon.
3: Yeah, now it's, it's almost impossible to measure the amount of time that it takes. If you have a single deferred statement in a function uh, and you measure it, you're going to get flakes. In, in, in Sometimes you're going to get the defer is faster mm-hmm. because it's so impossible to measure uh, nowadays
1: isn't it just optimized out though in that case because if it's just a defer in the body of a normal function and you know not in in some kind of loop if it's in a for loop then of course you'd have to wait for runtime before you can know what's going to be deferred but in a you could look, just by static analysis you could probably look at a function and say well i can see the exit points so i'll go and put all the call the methods whatever they are in those places
3: I don't know if that's what it's doing or if they've optimized the entire mechanism. So it wasn't that easy because of panics. So you might mm-hmm. see the returns, but you would also need to check all the statements that can panic because you need to uh, run the deferred statements on panic. And also loops can be unwound, so you can actually start deferring like five or six of the statements that you're going to defer anyways. So that, that, there is a lot of dark magic in the compiler, and I think this is one of the funniest ones to read.
2: I just read that if you don't recover, uh, if you recover, there is additional uh, performance penalty. Maybe it's because, like, they are doing some optimizations. Um, but if you have to, like, recover, then it becomes a more of, like, a hairy issue, maybe. I don't know how it works, but, you know.
1: <laughs> mm. But for readability, of course, defer wins hands down. I mean, when you've open a file and you check the error, then you say, okay, defer, file, close. You've got everything to do with opening and closing files in the same place. And it's quite obvious as well to, to notice when you've forgotten to close things because you're looking in that same area. It's right near where you've opened it. So I think for
4: readability, it just wins hands down, doesn't it? The typical sort of guidance I hear from, you know, experienced developers like yourselves is basically, hey, use defer because readability and because um, um, you don't want to forget right to leave like a file handle like open or something like that right that's that's just resource you know uh, misuse but i I would say sometimes i've done it both ways right and yes i have a penchant towards defer but at the same time depending on the how big the function that i'm working with is the how much i'm doing in there i may choose to if if i open a file i may choose to you know have the two or three extra lines you know that i'm doing after you know i open the file and then explicitly close, you know, the, the file like without using defer. So I think, you know, it's, it's a, yes, generally speaking, you know, you do want to use defer, but I, th- I don't think it should be interpreted as gospel.
2: That's true. It really depends on the job. Like in some instrumentation libraries, we specifically didn't want to you know, use defer, but if I have like more than like 10 microseconds of work to do or whatever, like I don't care. I would just defer.
1: Yeah, of course, the other benefit is if you defer then it doesn't matter where you exit in your function that's the only thing it's worth saying so if you're mm. opening a few files and you're going to do a few more things a bit more complicated then it definitely helps uh, but yeah um i think with everything it kind of depends probably on each individual case unfortunately
4: but it depends that's our patron saint for everything yeah <laughs> yeah it's true though so what about concurrency
3: <laughs> oh yeah I told you we could do a whole episode on defer. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm sure of that. Yeah, um, yeah. Actually, when when you told me about defer, I said that together with defer, we should talk about select, mm. because it's, um, I think, beautiful. Because um, most people uh, say that uh, go channels are great, but a channel, after all, is just a queue with a mutex on top. Select, on the other end, is so hard to implement. I think select is the real beauty there. It's funny
1: because it seems really simple from the outside when you just think, okay, yeah, there's a few events that can occur. I'm going to put each one as a case. It really feels quite simple. And it's, it's really powerful as well.
3: Yeah, but that's kind of the beauty of Go. Yeah, right.
2: I, yeah, I think the main concurrency feature in Go is the select statement than anything else. You know, it's like where the magic happens and it looks really simple to you, but like that's literally just impossible, it's so complicated to implement.
4: Mm. I, I want to dig into that a little bit. So <laughs> the I, I've, I've seen several codes. Um, where you have a SELECT statement and you have uh, um, a number of different cases. Sometimes you have a default, sometimes you do not. Can, can, can somebody explain why that is and what, what is the impact of having a, def- uh, a, de- a default case in your SELECT statement as opposed to not having one?
3: So SELECT is used to receive and send from and to channels and SELECT blocks until one of the cases becomes available if you have a default case, most like a switch. So basically if nothing else is available, select will just continue. Yeah, it it takes a while to get used to because I've seen people like doing stuff in a loop and having a default case in there and they were just spinning, trying to get some work and then, well, work is not available, let's do another round um, while instead they should have just blocked. And in other cases, people checking for context cancellation without a default case and that would just block everything. And that was hard to debug To debug because, I mean, HTTP handlers, it doesn't detect that, detect that there is a deadlock and stuff like that. So yeah, default non-blocking, no default blocking. The best way to block a program from continuing is having an empty, empty select.
1: Mm. Yeah, which is useful sometimes. Sometimes you do want to stop, have a program that just runs forever without consuming all the, whatever it does in a for loop. Because even a for loop is doing more work than just blocking at a select, right?
3: Yeah, and actually, what I find beautiful is that if you look in the runtime sources, the runtime builds a dependency graph. So like when a goroutine becomes available to do some work, the runtime knows, okay, that's the next one to schedule. If you have an empty select, that's one way to communicate to the runtime, this is never going to be ready. And so the runtime doesn't just handle it anymore. Just and somewhere, and it's going to stay there.
4: <laughs> so the, an empty select is like a humane way of saying I want this program to just stop, but it's not really uh, you know that my all my go routines have gone to sleep. I, I literally want everything to just stop.
2: You know, you just want the current go routine to just hang, right? right. Like everything else is going to work.
1: Yeah, if you've kicked, if you have a main program and you've kicked off five threads and and the threads are going to do all the work continuously in your program, I could see a case then for having an empty select on that main thread, maybe. Although, if you think about context and you can, you know, you can trap the signal from a control C and cancel a context from that. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, then you're actually able to. Tear down gracefully from a command C and then you can also then there's a, a way to write it so that the second hit, the second signal that comes in actually kills the program. And so that's quite a nice little pattern, things like that.
3: Yeah, just have a channel that is one big. This it's, is very nice.
1: Yeah, one a buffered channel with one yeah. space for one thing.
0: This episode is brought to you by GoCD. With native integrations for Kubernetes and a Helm chart to quickly get started, GoCD is an easy choice for cloud native teams. With GoCD running on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow and let GoCD provision and scale build infrastructure on the fly for you. GoCD installs as a Kubernetes native application, which allows for ease of operations, easily upgrade and maintain GoCD using Helm, scale your build infrastructure elastically with a new Elastic Agent that uses Kubernetes conventions to dynamically scale GoCD agents. GoCD also has first class integration with Docker registries. Easily compose, track, and visualize deployments on Kubernetes. Learn more and get started at go.cd.org/kubernetes. Again, go.cd.org/kubernetes.
1: You know when you do these signal channels, these channels where you don't plan on sending any information, only really you want to send a signal of some event, like I've finished or something like that. What type do you use? Ooh. Do you have a favorite? Because I have a favorite. It's a loaded question. I just want to tell you what my favorite is, so if we
3: could just get through (laughs) yours. For a moment, I thought you were going for buffer channels, and I was like, ooh, that's a loaded question, but you you found a better (laughs) one.
4: Okay, so... One of the, I guess, the idiom, idioms that have sort of been floating around is use uh, the, uh, the empty struct, right, as, as sort of the, a messaging mechanism, because it really occupies no memory, um, nothing's been allocated, basically, You're just signaling, right, just a pure signal. Beginners might also be tempted to use uh, booleans. I've seen um, integer types. I've seen you know people passing over channels. I've even seen uh, errors being passed o- as a signaling mechanism over channels. I'm not gonna say that these these mechanisms are wrong. Um, you know sometimes the value that you receive you know from that signal basically you should you treat it as both a signal and a value for you to do something with. And uh, it's gonna depend on, on your case obviously. But typically if you want a sort of a zero allocation type of mechanism, you're just sending a signal then. The empty struct is your friend.
2: It's also, I think, worth to mention that it really depends if this is going to be a public API, for example, like the signal package, or where you will have like different events and so on. I think it makes sense to, you know, have your type. Um, you can have like a type for the, you know, the signals, and you can have maybe more like predefined uh, signals uh, exported from that package and so on. But if it's more of like a self-contained thing, it's totally just good to just have an empty struct.
1: Yeah, the nice thing about the empty struct is you can't put any information in there. So it it really just makes that very clear that what it's going to be used for. I've seen a bool used as well, and I just never know if it matters if I send true or false down there. Like if I feel like there's some API now, whereas with an empty struct, it it can't be anything other than just a signal. So I like to use it that it's kind of a signal to programmers too. Helps with glanceability.
3: And sending false I mean <laughs> is it the zero value <laughs> but yeah boolean is dangerous yeah because if you get true there was a signal but if right. you get false yeah. you don't
4: know <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's the geekiest bit we've ever had on go
4: while I've been on, on <laughs> All right, and I think we all smiled yeah. at the same time when you exactly where you were going with that <laughs> yeah that's it we need more bits like that
3: I mean uh, most of what I do right now is code review I read way more code than I write and when I see people using like a map of something to bool, I always ask, what if you get false, but the key isn't there? Mm. Same for channels. What are you trying to tell your users? Or like buffer channels of size 50,
0: well,
3: I mean, I can understand one or two, but Mm. when it starts being like a hundred, I need a comment to tell me
4: why. Yeah shooting it like a cue
1: probably there's some performance tuning or something going on but you're right it just gets hidden and it looks strange and no one will touch it like you'll be scared to go near it because you feel like well (laughs) why is it 50 it's a bit like those numbers on lost when they just didn't know why they were putting the numbers (laughs) in
4: you just can't stop doing it just in case so let's talk about concurrency as they are used in things like libraries right so there is an idiomatic way of actually um, using concurrency in your library, basically hiding that completely away from from the user of of your library. And there is also guidance that basically says allow the user of your package of your library, right, to do things to orchestrate concurrency or right, using your package. You can you can do things sort of asynchronously, like a synchronously, like or rather top down, right, without you know basically having sort of a crossing that boundary so to speak right so if you're going to do concurrency do it internally right neatly inside of your your package but any other case you should let the user of your package orchestrate concurrency around there and if there is a chance that you're going to be doing things concurrently your library should accept right a channel upon which for it to send back some you know a signal or some result right of having done the concurrent the concurrent work for you So I've seen basically advice all across the the board there. I'm interested in in, in your take on that.
3: I don't like APIs that are asynchronous by definition. Hmm. Every time I see a library that, for example, takes a channel and is going to send results over that channel. Mm -hmm. Or even worse, you call a function and you get a channel back. I'm not a big fan of that because I always have to read the code. For example, if I cancel the context if they take a context. Mm-hmm. And are they going to check for cancellation at every send? Or do I need to drain the channel? Will they block if the channel fills up? All these kind of questions I prefer when my libraries stay synchronous. I, I don't like promises.
2: I completely agree with this. I think everything should be blocking as much as possible. And um because it's so easy to orchestrate everything with Go. Um I totally see that. Like, it's more valuable to give that also precise, I think, control to the user. Mm-hmm. Um, and some libraries end up actually like having two different APIs in the same package. They're kind of like you know replicating the same API, and it's completely, I think, just unnecessary because it's easy to you know or, orchestrate and put thing put things together in Go. But one of the things that Go is like doing not properly is uh, there is no easy way to you know in the, on the Go doc or everywhere anywhere to you know carefully label things that oh this is going to actually run in a different go routine or whatever for example mm-hmm. the http package every handler is running a different go routine and you need to maybe uh, leave a comment on the go doc uh, but it, you know there's not like it's not really readable some people just kind of miss it and like mm-hmm. i think we need a better approach to maybe explain how the underlying you know implementation kind of works from the perspective of concurrency sorry i'm slightly changing the topic and no, no,
3: I, no, yeah. I agree. I mean, one thing is like when you call a function that might spawn goroutines, but as long as it collects them before returning, that is fine. But if that stuff keeps running or it's going to run, for example, your closure that you pass in in another goroutine, you might want to know, for example, the uh, file path walk function. You might want to know if that thing is going to be run concurrently uh, because you might be closuring over a variable that you don't want to be touched across threads. Well, it doesn't spoiler it's synchronous but uh yeah it would be nice to have a way to say this is not going to require synchronization
2: yeah in in the recent i mean in the beginnings of go i've seen a lot of people actually like having mutexes uh, for some of the stuff that they were uh, trying to you know access from like several like closures which was actually never the case because you know the library was like given the guarantee that like one function will be you know uh be executed at a time and so on but there's like literally no way to you know explain it other than just put in this information in the GoDoc and it's not very really accessible
1: yeah that's an interesting thing it makes me think of something that always occurs to me which is that concurrency all the anytime you're writing concurrent code it's best to keep it very local keep it very nearby all of it And call out to functions to do other work. Don't try and do all the work so that the page kind of stretches down and you're left with bits of concurrent code scattered throughout. And also things like passing mutexes by pointers and things like this. If you can avoid that and just have a mutex in one place and do all the concurrency in one function, that's just so much easier to maintain and to reason about later. That's some experience as kind of Taught me that now, and I I tend to do that. I tend to have all my concurrent code in one place, and if it's a wait group and it's doing some work, I will call out to a function to go off and do the actual work, and uh, you know allows all my concurrent code to be uncluttered
4: from that. I couldn't agree more. So we've been deliberate, right, with our use of the word, you know, concurrent, right? So one of the sort of the first things you learn in working with Go is that. Concurrency is not necessarily parallelism, right? So, you're, by having concurrent code, you allow, right, for the the system that's going to be running your code to have your code run in parallel. But that's not something you can actually control. Maybe I think it was a talk by Rob Pike, actually titled as such, right? Concurrency is not parallelism. Um, that sort of shed light on on that whole mechanism. So, is is there been any case that you've encountered where parallelism wasn't the right thing to do <laughs> that you basically you wish you you, you, hadn't, you didn't have you know a, a concurrent code uh, that ended up being run in parallel like any sort of races uh, that you didn't anticipate or anything like that
3: I had a big headache trying to figure out how to properly do init because the code I was using was pointing goroutines and was blocking until those goroutines returned it but during init time mm you can't spawn go I mean you can spawn them but they won't run so that code was deadlocking on startup
4: wow that is a tough one yeah <laughs> never heard of that one before that's that's wow that's amazing
3: <laughs> amazing is one word
4: yes <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I mean don't use init don't, if we if we don't use init we might actually
3: avoid problems like that here here <laughs> <laughs> I second that motion <laughs> <laughs> yes, do not do not use init. I agree.
4: <laughs> Go ahead, JB.D.:
2: One of the things that I actually uh, I sometimes need parallelism, but not like any concurrent stuff, like such as, I just want to be able to lock a Go routine to a processor, and I want to be able to you know access everything without locks or whatever. Uh, Go doesn't give me that like precise like level of control. So that's, that's kind of funny. Like there's a lot of concurrency related features, but you know, if I'm just like, if I just want to distribute some workload over some processors and I know like the, you know, the data affinity and everything, um, I can't really do it because there's absolutely no way to do it. So, um, you know, these are different problems, parallelism and concurrency, and it gives you like different advantages. Um so there is the thing that there's like literally no way to tweak things, which is a bit bothering sometimes, but I think it doesn't really really represent the average user. Mm. But, you know, sometimes you kind of feel like you're so, sort of blocked.
1: Yeah. I mean, my experience mostly I build a lot of web stuff, a lot of web APIs, that kind of thing, websites, even blogs, things like that. <laughs> so I don't need to... <laughs> I'm not going in there saying, "Oi, I want this go routine on this core, and don't you move on to another one." You know, I'm, I'm happy for them to get on with it, do what they do what they need to do, just to render some bits. But yeah, so that is always the the case, I guess, is that those trade offs. And whether you think they're worth it or not, that's really the judgment call you get to make about the language, I suppose.
2: If you consider, like, if we start adding that type of like precise control, I think it's going to get super complicated, especially if libraries started like tweak those like you know arguments and so on. So I think I totally can see that it's benefiting the entire community to maybe you know have more of like a simple. Uh, API service, which is just the Go routines and like you know some sort of like synchronization mechanisms, and like providing nothing else. And you know it kind of like also carves the community and like the user base based on the you know functionality you provide. So mm. you are not going to maybe pick Go for some certain tasks because you know that like the you know the functionality is not there. If it becomes critical in the future, we can reconsider it. But maybe that's how things work. I don't know.
3: I was following very long thread on GoNuts last year, I think. And at one point, someone suggested, and I think it was Ian Taylor, suggested to use the Unix package to call set affinity to lock to a specific. So I've seen code using that, like Unix syscalls. They're not cross-platform as we love Go, but if you go that deep at a point, you might as well do your syscalls, like (laughs) as you wouldn't see. Yeah, that's what I do.
2: (laughs) I I like my OS thread and I, you know, call into either like that set affinity or NUMA type of stuff, unfortunately.
1: Oh, that that needs to be a talk, doesn't it? (laughs) We need to see that. Why on earth are you doing that and how? That's what we want to know.
2: My current job requires it because of some benchmarks and so on. So this is like literally for fun type of projects. Like it's not like some production service, you know, or whatever, but you know. Those are those tools are available to you that's true
4: interesting you might as well write and see i meant that as a joke
2: my life is a joke man wow <laughs> 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 <Whoa>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. i like being on the edge
4: <laughs> 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 bleeding and all
1: there's another trick that I do which I find really useful. I'll try and describe it. It probably isn't the easiest thing to describe, but it's essentially sometimes you want to do lots of work. There's lots of work to get through, but you know that you can only or you should only really be doing say 5 at a time. So you're happy for it to run as fast as it can, but only do 5 at a time. And one simple way to achieve that in Go is to have a buffered channel and the, the size of that buffer is the number of go routines you'll allow concurrently and then each go routine tries to put some write something into that channel and if it succeeds it then unblocks it goes ahead and it does its magic and of course the first five would that that'll be no problem they'll all be able to write into the channel the sixth one that comes along suddenly this channel's full because they were all filled up by the other Go routines, so this one then has to wait, and he'll block until something is then released from the channel, and they get released when the task is finished. So it's a bit like the mutex where you lock and then defer the unlock. You'd actually write into the channel, and then in the defer, you read something out of the channel, freeing a space for another Go routine. So that pattern is quite easy, I think, to reason about if you know the basics of channel semantics and how to code that in Go. But actually it turns out to be quite powerful and especially since that buffer can be configurable so you could actually even make it a flag to the program to ask how many of these do you want to be able to run concurrently. Another way to do it of course is just to spin up a certain number of Go routines and just have them drawing from a queue a different way. But I find that to be a little bit more confusing because you then have to have in another Go routine you have to be then populating the work in some way and that feels a little bit strange. But that's one little pattern I've uh, found that I quite like
3: I really like that and I really like how go is so simple that you can actually implement a semaphore in three lines mm. because what you described is a, is usually a semaphore and yeah. channels are such a higher level primitive that they allow you to implement whatever you want I mean even if you need a mutex with a try lock method because you want to try acquire and if you can't manage well just retry in, in a in a bit Well, you can do that with a channel, with a select and an empty uh, default block. I mean, channels are so much more expressive than just multixes.
1: Yeah. And you remind me as well of the the time.after that you can get in the time package, which actually returns a channel, which sends the time on it after a certain duration. So you can use that in select blocks as well to say, right, we're going to wait for this, maybe this go routine to finish. If it hasn't finished within one second, we'll run a different case. We might update the stats or something. You know, we might present an update to the user. So every second they get an update while we're waiting. Once the chat task then finishes, of course, the other case will trigger and it'll run, go and do the other thing. And there's also a ticker that you can do as well. But time after tends to be quite nice. Nice way to express timeouts in test code as well. If you're waiting for test code to complete, it's nice to have those little timeouts in there as well.
3: I've had bad experiences with a time package. (laughs) In general?
4: Yeah.
1: It sounds like a one-man show on Broadway.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I've I've had trouble with a time package. package. (laughs) The time time package monologue. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
3: I I really found myself writing a flowchart on paper to understand what functions, what what methods I could call on a timer, uh, sorry, on a ticker, and in which case, because like stop, or like, do, do you have to drain after stop? And if you do, and all, all that kind of stuff. So it's a nice package, but use it carefully.
1: Sage advice, sage advice indeed. And that leads us neatly to the end of our show today. Thank you very much to our guests and co-panelists, uh, Johnny Borsico, Yana Bidogan, and Roberto Clapis nice to hang out with you thanks very much thank you we'll see you next time oh it's not your time to talk now roberto (laughs) i'm doing the closing
3: bits
1: (laughs) we'll see you next time on go
0: time all right thank you for tuning into this week's episode of go time if you're not yet hang with us in go for slack we have a channel called go time fm look it up you'll find us Hang with us during the live shows, connect with other members of the community, share stories, share codes, share coffee recipes, whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions at changelaw.com on every episode. Head to changelaw.com slash go time. Find this episode and discuss it with the community. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner, Rollbar, for helping us move fast and fix things. And Linode for hosting the ChangeLaw platform. Our music is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more awesome podcasts like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's one feed to rule them all, plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search for Change Love Master in your podcast client, you'll find us. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.